When I moved to Edinburgh, I quickly realised that I needed to find a new barber. So I decided I would try the one closest to my front door. And when I got there, I sat down in the chair and before I knew it, I'm having awkward small talk with a total stranger. And it's not long before the fact that I'm training to be a pastor comes up in the conversation. And to my surprise, he asked me something I don't get asked very often as I go about my life. He said, do you believe that everyone goes to heaven? Talk about a way in. So I said, well, I believe the Bible and the Bible says that only people who trust in Jesus go to heaven. He gave me a funny look in the mirror and he replied saying something I'm sure you've heard before or something like it. He said, well, I think there's lots of holy books and it doesn't matter which one you choose. We're all on our own journey and we are all heading to the same place. So heart in my mouth, fumbling my words, I give my best go at explaining why trusting in Christ is the only way to be saved. But sadly, that didn't go down very well. He changed the topic as quickly as he could and he cut my hair as fast as he could. And when he'd finished, I walked out feeling like I was a terrible evangelist. I felt like a great gospel opportunity had just slipped through my fingers because it was obvious that my barber had already been thinking about two very important questions that most people don't think about. The first thing he was thinking about was who can be saved? Who goes to heaven? And the second thing he had been thinking about was how can someone be saved? But sadly, he didn't have the correct answers to either of those questions and he didn't want to listen to the truth. Now, I'm telling you about that encounter because the story of Naaman being healed from leprosy wonderfully illustrates the Bible's answers to both those questions. Because this is not just a story about a man being healed of leprosy. This is a story of someone from outside the faith being converted. Who can be saved? Who can be cleansed of this leprous, sinful condition that inflicts all of us and if left alone would kill us? Anyone. God, in his sovereignty, by his grace, can save anyone. The gospel is inclusive. Not even Naaman is outside the reach of God's grace. How can someone be saved? Well, the Bible teaches us that although the gospel is inclusive, it is also exclusive. There's only one way to be saved. People can only be saved as God in his sovereignty and by his grace draws them to himself. We are saved when God works a miracle in our hearts and brings us humbly to our knees before him asking him to forgive us and to cleanse and heal our souls that have been broken and warped by our sin and rebellion against him. And of course for us, that cleansing comes from the blood of Christ our Saviour, shed for us on the cross. So as we look at this story of God's sovereign grace, I want you to keep those two very important questions in mind. And it would be really helpful to keep the passage open in front of you as we work our way through it. Now in this story, the author highlights his main points by playing the characters off one another. Sometimes the characters trade places, sometimes they are placed beside each other in the story to compare or to contrast with one another. And we're going to use each time the author does that to help us work our way through the text. And when we do that, we end up with three scenes. And to give you a bit of a roadmap this morning, let me tell you what they are. We have the little Israelite girl who isn't like the Israelite king. The great leper who becomes like the little girl and the faithless servant who becomes like the leper. Okay, so let's dive in to scene one. The little Israelite girl who isn't like the Israelite king. 
Right at the start of this scene, we're introduced to Neiman. Neiman is a man with an extremely impressive CV. He's the commander of the army of the king of Aram, also known as Syria. And he's highly regarded because he's a valiant soldier who has a number of victorious battles in his portfolio. But it's important that we don't skip over the fact that the one who is really responsible for all his success is God. It says the Lord had given victory to Aram. And just as an aside, although a really important aside, notice that God is not just directing things in Israel. He's actually sovereign over all the nations, including Syria. God is directing the affairs of his world. There is no military power or political regime or world leader that is outside of his control or operating outside of his plan. And we shouldn't just brush past that, especially in today's climate. But before we get carried away with this impressive CV, we're brought down to earth with a thud by a little detail at the very end. But he had leprosy. This great man had a great need. His great achievements, his high standing, his impressive CV, none of it could do anything about his condition. He had it all, but he was still a leper. But the main character in this opening scene is not this great general with a great need. It's his servant, a little Israelite girl. This little girl has been grabbed in a Syrian raid and has wound up in Naaman's household. Effectively, she's been human trafficked. Her parents are probably dead. She's far from home, living out her day serving a foreign person in a foreign land with all sorts of foreign gods surrounding her. She has found herself in extremely distressing and difficult circumstances. And we would expect someone who has gone through such an horrific ordeal to have a chip on her shoulder. We expect her to despise Naaman for what he's done to her. But surprisingly, that isn't the case. When this little girl becomes aware of her master's condition, rather than delighting in his affliction, her reaction is the opposite. She has compassion for her enemy. And her compassion leads her to say something very brave. If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. You know that country you've been wiping the floor with in battle and you absolutely hate? Well, they have a prophet who can sort this out in no time. You should go. But this brave comment doesn't reveal that this little girl has Stockholm Syndrome. It reveals that she has grasped God's grace. Who can be saved? Anyone. Even the Syrian general who is keeping me captive. How can Syrians be saved? Only by the God of Israel. She is totally exclusive about who has the power to do anything about Naaman's condition. She knows that only the God of Israel can help him. Yet she is totally inclusive about who that salvation is offered to. The cleansing that only God can do is offered to all if only they would go to him. And what happens next in the story is remarkable. Naaman actually listens and he goes to his king to get permission to head to Israel. And even more remarkably, the king of Aram is happy to go with the, little, with the word of this little girl as well. And the only real explanation for that is that God is at work behind the scenes. He's working in their hearts to make sure that Naaman gets to Israel. Now, they don't quite follow the, the little girl's words exactly. Because instead of going straight to the prophet, they decide it's best to visit the king of Israel first. And so the king of Aram sends Naaman off to the king of Israel with some credentials, probably thinking that such a great prophet would surely be part of the royal court in Israel. 
but they thought wrong. Because when Naaman arrives and hands over the letter asking the king to cure him of his leprosy, the king has a total meltdown. He tears his clothes and goes into mourning. He panics and thinks this is some devious scheme that the Arameans have devised to start a fight. And what we're supposed to notice here is that the king of Israel's reaction to Naaman's condition is the complete opposite of the little girl. Of all the people, the king of Israel should know that Israel's God has the power to do something. But he completely lacks faith. He doesn't see this as an opportunity for God to display his power and his glory. He may sound perfectly orthodox when he says, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? But really, he's revealing that in his heart, he doesn't believe that God will do anything for this man. He hasn't grasped that God is gracious. Only thinking of himself, he's terrified because he doesn't think this request can be granted and it's going to cause an international incident. Now, the big point that the author is making in this scene is that God's sovereign grace is available to anyone. God's sovereign grace is available to anyone. We are supposed to look at this little Israelite girl as a model to follow. The people who first read this book were in exile in Babylon. This little girl was in exile in Syria. She's showing them how an Israelite should live in a foreign land. And she's an example to us as well as we go on living as exiles in a land where most people don't share our beliefs or live by God's standards. Even though this little girl found herself in a place that was hostile to God, she didn't lose sight of who God is. She didn't stop believing that her God could save anyone. She didn't let her circumstances make her heart grow cold. And when the opportunity came along, she showed compassion and did the simple task of telling Naaman's wife about God's prophet. There's a challenge here for us as we go about our lives in a world that is increasingly hostile to God and the gospel. We too are called to stay faithful to God despite the idolatry going on around us. We too are called to not let our hearts grow cold to the many people around us who are in desperate need of God's grace. We are called to be compassionate to everyone, always ready to tell them about Jesus. And that starts with having the right theology. We need to believe that God can save anyone and that no one is beyond his grace. We are to be entirely inclusive about who the gospel is offered to. There's also an encouragement here for those of us who find ourselves in unexpected or difficult circumstances. Maybe you don't know why you are where you are. Maybe you don't know why something is happening to you. But this story shows us that what needs to change is not our circumstances, but our perspective. God has put you where you are for a reason. It might not be immediately obvious right now. It might be a really painful experience. But he is constantly using his people for his glory, whether that's something he does through us or something he does in us. Or maybe you feel insignificant and that God could never use someone like you. That's total rubbish. God loves to use ordinary people to accomplish his extraordinary purposes. You don't have to be a pastor. You don't have to be a full-time evangelist. God used a little insignificant servant girl to point Naaman to where he needed to go. Every Christian is called to do that, to do the work of the Great Commission and make disciples. And that starts with the belief that our sovereign and gracious God can save anyone. Okay, our next scene 
is the great leper who becomes like the little girl. So Naaman has gone to the king of Israel and the king has completely freaked out. But thankfully, Elisha, the Lord's prophet, has heard about what's going on and says, just send him to me and I'll take care of it. So Naaman leaves holding his reference from the king of Syria and he makes his way to Elisha's house with all his horses and chariots. And we know from verse 5 that he's also brought with him a small fortune. Ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold and ten sets of clothing. Who can be saved? Well, surely Syrian generals with connections, money and worldly success. If anyone is going to ingratiate himself with the Lord's prophet, then look no further. But Naaman is in for a rude awakening. When he arrives, Elisha doesn't even greet him. Instead, he sends out a messenger. He just tells him to do what lepers were supposed to do in Israel. Wash in the Jordan seven times. Not exactly what Naaman was hoping for or expecting. He's just treated like any other leper. And he's so annoyed, he storms off in a massive huff. He's personally insulted that Elisha didn't roll out the red carpet. He's furious that someone as important as him wasn't healed on the spot. I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. And not only that, he's personally offended by what Elisha has told him to do. Washing in the river is too simple and humiliating for such a proud and important man. And if I was to wash in a river, are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? It seems that Naaman has got the two questions the wrong way around to the little girl. Who can be saved? According to Naaman, only important people with the right resources. How can important people be saved? Well, if it involves washing, then surely it doesn't have to be a Jewish washing. Surely there are nicer rivers. In fact, we have a couple of nice swimming spots back home in Syria that are just as good. Surely there are several paths up the mountain. In his pride and in his anger, the story could have ended right there. Just like many of our own stories could have ended. But God had other plans. Again, the insignificant people have a part to play in this conversion story. It's Naaman's servants who plead with him and say, if the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? This is not a big ask. What have you got to lose? And remarkably, again, Naaman listens. He humbles himself and does as the man of God had told him. And look what happens in verse 14. His flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Now, that extra bit of detail, like that of a young boy, is there to do something that is a bit more obvious in the Hebrew text. The Hebrew for little boy is Nara Karton. The phrase used in this chapter for the little girl in Naaman's service is Nara Kartanana. This little detail is deliberately placed so that we sit up and notice that this great general has become like this little girl. Now, Naaman and the little girl are not alike purely because they now both don't have leprosy. They're alike because they are now both believers. Naaman hasn't just undergone a physical transformation, he's had a spiritual transformation as well. And we can see that from verse 15. Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. He now acknowledges that only the God of Israel has the power to save. And on top of that, they're alike because, ironically, now Naaman is going to be in exile when he goes back to Syria as well. 
He's become an Israelite. He wants to take as much earth as a pair of mules can carry back to Syria with him because he now views Israel as his true home. When he gets back to Syria, he wants to be on Israelite soil, just like diplomats today are on home soil when they're in their nation's embassy overseas. He also now hates the pagan worship that is so prevalent in his homeland. Look at verse 17. Your servant will never again make burnt offerings or sacrifices to any other god but the Lord. God has totally transformed him. From now on, Naaman will exclusively worship Yahweh. Now, verse 18 is a little bit confusing, but we aren't to think that Naaman hasn't fully turned to God. He says, But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Rimmon to bow down and he is leaning on my arm and I have to bow there also. May the Lord forgive your servant for this. Basically, he's telling Elisha that going to the temple of Rimmon with the king of Syria is part of his job description. He has to perform this ceremonial function or he risks being killed. And he's saying that when he has to go there, he's not going to mean it. He'll have his fingers crossed behind his back. And he confesses this to Elisha because this valiant, brave general now has a sensitive conscience. He doesn't want to do anything that might displease the Lord anymore. So this is actually another sign that Naaman has been converted. And with that confession off his chest, the scene ends with Elisha telling Naaman to go in peace and Naaman heads on his way. Now, the big point that this scene teaches us is that God's sovereign grace is able to transform anyone. God's sovereign grace is able to transform anyone. The only reason Naaman was cleansed from his leprosy and brought to faith was because God was at work in his life. Naaman came with certain expectations. He was so proud and full of his own importance that he came to Elisha having already planned out how things were going to go. He thought he would have more than enough to qualify or to pay what it cost to be rescued from his condition. And when all he received was a word from the prophet that he was to put his trust in and humbly obey, he was outraged. Wash in the river seven times? How absurd! And yet not as absurd as telling people that a man's death on the cross 2,000 years ago brings cleansing and new life today. Just as God worked in Naaman's heart and humbled him, God has to do that in every single person who would put their trust in Christ. As the Bible tells us in Romans 3, there is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. The cross of Christ is a stumbling block in every generation. The only way we can be cleansed of our sinful condition is when God brings us to the end of ourselves that we may put our trust in Jesus Christ alone. Maybe you've been a Christian for a long time and the joy and the wonder of your salvation has faded a little bit. Don't forget how incredible it is that in his grace and in his mercy, God transformed us. He broke down our pride. He brought us to the end of ourselves so that we would put our trust in him and be saved. God could have left us in our spiritual leprosy, in our natural sinful state that leads to death and God's judgment. He could have allowed us to remain as his enemies and as outsiders. But in his sovereign grace, as Paul teaches in Ephesians 1, he predestined us to be adopted to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. As it says in Romans 8, he predestined us 
to be conformed to the image of his son. How amazing that God would transform lepers like us and bring us into his family. When was the last time you thanked God for the wonderful grace he has lavished on us? Why not take time today to reflect on God's grace and thank him for what he's done for you? Or maybe you're listening to this today and you're not a Christian yet. Perhaps, if you're honest, you see something of yourself in Naaman. You've been relying on your own accomplishments, your own wealth, your own importance to get you through. You need to hear that there is nothing that you can do to save yourself. Maybe you're personally offended by that. Maybe you think that the gospel is simplistic and narrow-minded. Maybe you think believing in Christ would be humiliating. If that's you, then remember the words of Naaman's servants. If you were in trouble and you could do some great thing to be safe from it, would you not do it? Well, I have to tell you that without Christ, you are in trouble. And all God requires is that you humbly admit that you need help. That you come to him to be washed and cleansed of all the sin that prevents you from being in relationship with him. Put your trust in Jesus Christ. He took the punishment for your sin on the cross and offers forgiveness and eternal life to all those who come to him. Okay, we have one more scene to look at, and that is the faithless servant who becomes like the leper. So Elisha has sent Naaman off back to Syria, and he sent him back with the great war chest of cash and all the Armani suits that he brought with him. Back in Israel, the camera pans to Gehazi, one of Elisha's servants who has been watching this whole episode unfold with disgust. And in verse 20, he says to himself, My master was too easy on Naaman, this Aramean, by not accepting from him what he brought. As surely as the Lord lives, I will run after him and extract something from him. So Gehazi speeds off after Naaman and catches up with him. And then he comes out with a well-prepared lie in verse 22. My master sent me to say, two young men from the company of the prophets have just come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two sets of clothing. Naaman was prepared to pay a much larger amount to Elisha, so this relatively small ask doesn't arouse his suspicion and he gladly hands over the goods. Gehazi heads back, he hides his stash and returns to Elisha like nothing has happened. He thinks he's gotten away with it, but Elisha has seen the whole thing on prophetic CCTV. Where have you been, Gehazi? And Gehazi replies like a teenager who's just come home really late. I haven't been anywhere. But Elisha is having none of it. Was not my spirit with you when the man got down from his chariot to meet you? Is this the time to take money or to accept clothes or olive groves and vineyards or flocks and herds or male and female slaves? And here's the dramatic climax of the story. What Gehazi did is so detestable in God's eyes that he's going to make an example of him. Naaman's leprosy will cling to you and to your descendants forever. And verse 27 tells us that Gehazi went from Elisha's presence and his skin was leprous. It had become as white as snow. We started this chapter with a man with leprosy and we finish it in the same way. This faithless servant has become like the leper. Now, the events of this scene are intended to teach us that God's sovereign grace is always free. God's sovereign grace is always free. The problem with what Gehazi did is not just that he was deceitful, it's that he distorted the gospel. 
He misrepresented God's grace. God's grace was coming to Naaman free of charge. Elisha refused to accept anything from Naaman. In Elisha's eyes, this was not and could never be a transaction. And Gehazi didn't like that. He wanted to put a price on salvation. Gehazi also had her two questions wrong. Who can be saved? Well, in Gehazi's mind, it seems that you have to be a certain type of person. And from the way he says this Aramean in verse 20, we can see that he had drawn moral and racial lines around who could receive God's grace. Gehazi doesn't want a bloodthirsty Syrian to be saved. How can someone be saved? Well, if you're not one of us, then it's, going, it's not going to be easy and it's going to cost you. Gehazi is exclusively exclusive. And it's this sinful attitude, this wrong theology, that leads him to place additional demands on Naaman. Demands that God never placed on him. Brothers and sisters, may I suggest that this is a danger that we have to guard ourselves against. We need to make sure that we don't suffer from Gehazi syndrome, where we have a preconceived idea about who fits the mould and we put additional hurdles in front of people hearing the gospel. It doesn't matter what race someone is. It doesn't matter if someone is currently following another religion. It doesn't matter what their sexuality is or what their financial status is. Like Elisha, we need to offer God's salvation to everyone without price and allow God to do the transforming. We can't get the order of salvation wrong and expect people to clean up their act or to look like us before they come to Jesus. God's salvation is always freely offered to everyone. That doesn't mean that God's grace is cheap. It costs God everything he had. It costs Jesus Christ his life. And it doesn't mean that following Jesus won't cost us anything. There are things we must leave behind to follow Jesus. It just means that there's nothing anyone could ever do to earn God's grace. God's sovereign grace is always free. Now, before we finish, there's a character in this story that we haven't thought about very much, and that is Elisha. Elisha was Elijah's successor, and the thing about Elisha is he was supposed to bring judgment on the land of Israel. God had had enough of Israel's unfaithfulness, and Elisha was the prophet who was going to be God's instrument of judgment. And that's what we read in 1 Kings 19, when Elijah passes on the mantle to Elisha. But the surprising thing about Elisha is that when he comes on the scene, he doesn't bring judgment right away. He actually brings salvation. And that's how the book of 2 Kings starts. It starts with five stories of salvation. And this story of Naaman being healed from leprosy is the third story, right in the centre of the five. So this story takes place at a time between the announcement of God's judgement and God's judgement actually coming. We expect judgement, but Elisha brings rescue. He gives the people a window of opportunity to be rescued. And the unique emphasis that we see from Naaman's conversion is that this window of opportunity is offered even to God's enemies. Even Gentiles outside of Israel um, can be saved by God's grace. Now, I'm telling you this because we also live in a time between the announcement of God's judgment and God's judgment coming. We also live in a window of opportunity. Elisha is a preview of Jesus. 
When Jesus walked this earth, he was expected to bring judgment. In Matthew 3, John the Baptist, who was like Elijah, he warned that Jesus was coming with his winnowing fork in his hand, ready to clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn and burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. But when Jesus did arrive, that wasn't what happened. Instead, he brought salvation. When he took our sin as he died on the cross and rose again from the dead, he opened a window of opportunity for anyone who comes to him to be saved. Anyone willing to admit that they need God's help and that they need to be cleansed of our spiritual leprosy, of the sin that separates us from him, can find cleansing and forgiveness. If you're not a Christian, now is the time to come to Christ and be saved. We are in a window of opportunity that could close at any time. There is a day when Christ will return to judge the earth and there will be a winnowing fork in his hand. He will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire and only those who are safely found in him will survive. In this story, we saw God acting graciously to cleanse and to convert Naaman. Naaman received far more than he deserves. And for us today, the grace of God lives in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Come and avail yourself of that grace. And as this story teaches us, it doesn't matter who you are, God's grace is available to anyone. It doesn't matter how much you've messed up your life, God's grace is able to transform you. It doesn't matter if you have nothing to bring to the table. There's nothing you could bring to the table. God freely offers his grace to those who come to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are God of grace and you offer uh, your grace and your salvation to anyone who comes to you. We thank you so much for sending your son, Jesus Christ, so that we could be cleansed of our sin and given new life in him. Lord, we pray that we would have a greater appreciation for that. Lord, we pray that as we live as exiles, that we would always be seeking opportunities to share your love and to point people to Jesus. And Lord, we pray for all those listening to this who don't know you yet. And Lord, we ask that by your sovereign grace, you would humble them and bring them to you and that they might be saved. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.